0: Brad told me that I could uh, blame him for having to preach on Psalm 137. Um, Yeah, that'll be fine. Um, It is a challenging Psalm, and uh, as we approach it this morning, I wanna ask um, some reflective questions for us to begin kind of wrestling with as we enter into it. The first question I want us to think through as we enter into this Psalm is, what do you do with your anger When you have been wronged, what do you do with your anger when you have been wronged? And what should you do with your anger? And furthermore, what should we do when injustice is so insidious and extreme and unstopping that it feels like it is totally hopeless? Psalm 137 feels shocking to us, and it should, particularly at the end. In particular, that God's people could pray a prayer of blessing over those who would dash the infants of the Babylonians against the rocks. It's shocking, and it should be. But lest we be tempted to dismiss this psalm as out of order or as the expression of a primitive or primal ancient people, we first have to recognize the context of Psalm 137, And seek to empathize with the state of God's people in this psalm. Uh, Psalm 137 gives us a heartbreaking window into the state of God's people in exile. And their cry for justice is shocking because their experience of injustice is shocking. In order for us to rightly understand and interpret Psalm 137, or really any scripture for that matter... We have to see the difference in the context of the psalm or the scripture that we're reading and our own context. If we don't see the differences between those two things, then we will always misinterpret scriptures. And uh, in this particular passage, Israel is in a state of brutal oppression, um, on the heels of a brutal and cruel, cruel crushing defeat at the hands of a historically brutal nation. Uh, Charles Spurgeon, who some of you are familiar with, a famous um, 19th century Baptist minister in London who was very wise, he says this as an introduction to the psalm. He says, "'Let those find fault with it who have never seen their temple burned, their city ruined, their wives ravished, and after their children have been slain. They might not perhaps be quite so velvet-mouthed if they had suffered after this fashion.'" It is one thing to talk for the bitter feeling which which moved captive Israelites in Babylon, and quite another thing, to be captives ourselves under a savage and remorseless power, which knew not how to show mercy, but delighted in the barbarities to the defenseless. Some of you this morning um, might come this morning having experienced some degree of injustice, and some degree of even the extremity of injustice That Israel has experienced. If you've spent time in a war-ravaged country, you have seen the fruit of some of what Israel is experiencing in this passage. Perhaps if you've experienced sexual abuse or if you've served in a community that is ravaged by drugs that are pushed and sold for the prosperity of evil people, maybe you can actually have some level of identification with those in this passage. But most of us have never experienced the degree of brutal injustice that Israel has experienced here. And rather than dismiss the voice of the oppressed, I want to encourage us this morning to hear their cries. Verse 7 of this passage recalls Edom, a people that actually historically were related to Israel. Edom uh, is is born out of Esau, the brother of Jacob, who is the patriarch of Israel. And Edom had historically uh, been a kin of Israel, and yet they were a people who had egged on Babylon to not just defeat Israel, but as it says in verse 7, to lay Israel bare, to raise it all the way to its foundations, to burn it to the ground, to desecrate the temple, to abolish every house, and to plunder it. And verse 8 says, blessed shall he be who repays you, with that you have with what you have done to us. The implication? That Israel has experienced their own children being dashed against the rocks. And every imaginable atrocity of war had been unleashed on the Jewish people that are now captives in Babylon. And what Israel is praying in this, uh, in the application of the, in this passage is the application of what um, theologians call the lex talionis, which is simply uh, Latin, for the justice of being in kind to the crime that has been committed. And this is actually in the Bible. It comes in several places in the Old Testament. Uh, one of the places that it is named in the Old Testament in this cry for proportional justice is in Exodus chapter 21, verses 23 through 25. And the immediate context of those verses is of a slave master striking their slave and killing them, or of someone striking a pregnant woman and the baby dying. And this is what Exodus 21 says in verse 23. But if there is harm, then you shall pay life for life, eye for eye, tooth for tooth, and hand for hand, foot for foot, burn for burn, wound for wound, stripe for stripe. Israel is saying we have been brutally defeated and brutally oppressed. Will there be an end to this? Will there be justice that is proportionate to the crime that has been committed against us? And the first half of Psalm 137 pates paints a mournful picture of an oppressed people. They sit not by the banks of the Jordan where their homeland is, but by the canals of Babylon. And there they weep as they remember their homeland, what it was like to farm their land, to dwell with their families, to go to the temple and worship God, to have a place that they belonged and experience prosperity and blessing, and they remember and they weep. And they hang their musical instruments on the branches of the willow that, as Spurgeon observes, poetically embodies the state of Israel. This tree that is weeping is the tree that holds their musical instruments. Even the willow weeps as they hold the instruments that once produced the sound of joy in Israel and now only depicts the powerlessness of oppression. Oppression. The experience of Israel oppression, of Israel's oppression is not just past tense either. It is an ongoing oppression. Even in the state of their abject sorrow, it says that their tormentors demand of them to sing their songs of the homeland. If you've ever had someone to tell you to act happy when you're deeply grieved, you know how infuriating that is? And if you can identify with that, then you have the smallest entryway into empathizing with the people and what's happening here. They're being told by their captors to sing the songs of joy and probably of worship, to not look back fondly or to console them, but they're being asked to sing these songs of joy, both to entertain and to mock, as entertainment for their captors. And Israel refuses. In fact, the psalm shifts from this collective mourning over the state of sorrow of Israel into a defiant commitment to not participate in the mockery that their tormentors demand of them. They've said in these first few verses, that is a, there's the, the, the first person plural pronoun, we. And they say, how shall we sing the Lord's song in a foreign land? And then it shifts in these verses to saying, if I forget Jerusalem... There's a personal commitment that they're saying because of the state of our reality. If I forget Jerusalem, if I do not see Jerusalem, the fulfillment of God's promises to be with and to bless his people as my highest joy, then let my right hand forget and my tongue stick to my mouth. In other words, what they're saying in this psalm is I would rather never play an instrument again and never let a song flow from my mouth again than to make a mockery of the beauty that is God dwelling with his people. I would rather be skillless and mute than mock the goodness of worshiping God in his house, rather than capitulate to what they saw as tantamount to mocking the worship of God. And as they have this defiant commitment, a sort of self imprecation then they pray for justice. They say, remember, O Lord, Even as we remember the joy of Jerusalem, remember the evil that we experienced. Remember Edom. Remember that they advised Babylon to lay the foundations of Israel to the ground. And do not let them get away with it. Remember that Babylon destroyed our land and the holy hill of Zion. And do not let them get away with it. Put an end to their evil in the world. Destroy, O God. Remember what they have done. See what they are doing and act accordingly. Part of what the brutal poetic imagery of children being dashed against the rocks is calling for in this passage is an end to the cycle of the oppressive and brutal reign of the Babylonian Empire. Um, It is extreme language and there is no way around that. But what they're praying for and asking for is that the generations of a nation that has brutally oppressed the nations around it would come to an end. And they're saying, blessed is the one who ends and a blessing that it will be to the world around them when there is an end to this oppression. Israel is deeply grieved in their oppressive exile and they refuse to be cynical about or mock the beauty of life, the life that they knew in Jerusalem. Instead, they defiantly remember and pray for God to meet justice and their oppressors. So what are we to do with this? This psalm that is so foreign to, way that, to the way that we so often talk and think that seems so extreme. This overwhelming and shocking depiction of evil and justice, what are we to do with it? Well, first of all, we need to recognize that we are often a people who minimize the reality of evil and the need for justice And the reason that we so often minimize the reality of evil and the need for justice is because we can. We live in a sanitized world where we think of evil as an idea, not as a daily reality. Where war, sex trafficking, abuse, and oppression are not always on our doorstep. They're out there somewhere. And consequently, justice is lightly needed. We think people just need a redirection, a little education, a warning, and then things will be okay. And it is the subtlety of this notion that begins to allow us to believe that a loving God could not be a God of justice and judgment. If you believe that the problems of this world are relatively easily fixable or are distant, then you only need a God who affirms people and tells them he likes them. But if there is real evil in the world and even in our own hearts, then we need a God of justice, a God who will not turn a blind eye. Mirslav Volf is a Croatian theologian whose father actually became a believer in a community uh, or in a communist labor camp. And he's written extensively on reconciliation and forgiveness in some of the most difficult circumstances, and he has some of the most challenging and beautiful things that he says, but he writes this. He says, "'My thesis, the practice of nonviolence, requires a belief in divine vengeance, will be unpopular with many Christians, especially theologians in the West.'" If you had experienced the evils of war, soon you would discover that it takes the quiet of a suburban home for the birth of the thesis that human nonviolence corresponds to God's refusal to judge. But in a scorched land, soaked in the blood of the innocent, it will invariably die. What Miroslav Volf is arguing and what Psalm 137 is depicting is that the possibility of the justice of God being at odds with his love is only possible if the deepest evil of the world has not yet come to our doorstep. But if it has, then we must plead for God to bring justice. If we have seen it truly in the world, then we must plead for God to bring justice. But it's also extremely important to note What Israel is calling for in this passage is not about personal vengeance. It's so easy for us to read a psalm like this, and I think one of the reasons that we can become uncomfortable with it is because we think that this is somehow endorsing a sense of personal vengeance, but quite the contrary. What Israel is calling for is about God's justice. We are shocked and uncomfortable with the the comfortability that the imprecatory psalms display with calling for God's judgment. But it's easy to miss that they are actually a prayer, the prayer that the Israelites are praying is actually a prayer of relinquishment. They're actually praying a prayer that relinquishes their own right to vengeance in saying we are utterly grieved and we are angry and we are crying out in the most most desperate of terms and we are relinquishing punishment and a right to vengeance. Carl Ellis, um, who has taught me a lot, uh, and he wrote a book called Free at Last, The Gospel in the African-American Experience, wisely says that vengeance always soils justice. And here, Psalm 137 refuses to soil justice, but relinquishes vengeance to God. And as we understand this, Psalm 137 ceases to be at odds with our understanding of the New Testament. Psalm 137 actually begins to make so much more sense and the teachings of the New Testament begin to make so much more sense to us when we begin to understand these ideas. Um, our guest preacher last week read from Psalm or sorry rather from Romans 12, and I'm going to read from it again this morning, because it's so important for us to digest what we're being called to as Christians as we deal with anger and injustice in the world. And this is what Romans 12 verses 14 through 21 says: "It says, "Bless those who persecute you." Beloved, never avenge yourselves, but leave it to the wrath of God, for it is written, Vengeance is mine, I will repay, says the Lord. To the contrary, if your enemy is hungry, feed him. If he is thirsty, give him something to drink. For by so doing, you will heap burning coals on his head. Do not be overcome by evil, but overcome evil with good. Do you see what Paul is saying in Romans chapter 12? We have this tension with our anger personally and in society where we say we want a world of love and tolerance, but when we see evil, we're vengeful. In some ways, this is sort of what cancel culture is about, right? And that's not to say that there can't be helpful uh, expressions of cancel culture. Certainly, there are places where people need to be called out for evil, particularly public evil. But if you notice the patterns of the way that we do justice in this sort of public sphere in our world, we are all about love and tolerance until someone crosses the ethical boundaries that we care about the most. And then we will never be satisfied until they are utterly destroyed. It doesn't matter if the crime and the punishment are actually at a same level, We as a society deeply seek to and desire to destroy people when they have crossed some sort of ethical line that we deeply disagree with. And here's the thing in the way that we tend to operate, though we give lip service to love and tolerance, there is no option for people to repent and for us to forgive them. They are severed, they're done. And there's nothing else for them to do as human beings. We barely even consider them to be human beings in the world. And yet somehow Romans calls us to bless those who would persecute us. And to never repay someone with evil. And to live at peace with all men in so much as it is in our power. And to overcome evil with good. How? How in the world can we do this? When racism abounds and power is abused and justice is made a mockery. Not by stripping the dignity of those we vehemently disagree with, but by grieving evil in the world and in others and in ourselves and refusing to participate in the mockery of what God has made good and crying out for God to bring justice. Vengeance is mine, says the Lord. And so we can say, do not be overcome by evil, but overcome evil with good. We cannot forgive if we do not have hope for justice in the world. And a God who is both loving and just is absolutely necessary for the possibility of forgiveness. Psalm 137 is not about personal vengeance. Even the brutal verse 9 it is using the same language of Isaiah 16 that predicts the downfall of Babylon. And they're praying that God's, promi- that God's prophecies would come to fruition and that evil would be stopped in its tracks. Israel's hope is a long hope, yes. And Israel did ultimately have their fortunes returned and were brought out of exile, but their prayer is actually still an ongoing prayer for the church and the world. And it is still an ongoing prayer for you and I. Trevor Lawrence, not the quarterback, but a sermon, uh, but a, a pastor, says that the psalmist reaches for the day when the line of the wicked will be cut off forever so that those who trust in the Lord might flourish before his face in unimpeded worship and joy. That's the longing behind this psalm. And it's a longing that you and I, if we look to Jesus in faith, are called to tap into as well. But moreover, what Israel is ultimately longing for is Jesus. If you've read through and heard us talk about the book uh, book five of the Psalms throughout this summer, you know that there is this consistent theme throughout the Psalms, and particularly in book five of the Psalms, of a longing for an heir from David's royal line who will rise rise from Israel to reign over the nation's. And some commentators argue that the blessed one who will ultimately put an end to evil that is longed for in this passage is actually Jesus himself. The, the Psalms that follow in, verse, in uh, Psalms 138 through 145 after the one um, that we just read and are talking about this morning are all Psalms of David. They're pointing to the royal line, the coming one, the longed-for lineage of Israel they are a longing for Jesus, a righteous and merciful judge, a judge who first comes calling people to repentance and offering mercy. It's remarkable if you've ever read through, um, I believe it's in Second Peter, I don't have this in my notes, but, um, and it says that, uh, you know, it's talking about the judgment that is coming and Jesus' return, and it actually says that the reason that Jesus has not returned yet is so that more might come to repentance and not perish. You see, in Jesus and in the waiting period that we have right now, Jesus is a righteous and merciful judge. A judge who first comes calling people to repentance and offering mercy, but also a judge who is going to return for those who refuse to receive mercy and turn in repentance from their evil to receive his grace that there will be judgment. And this psalm and our understanding of Jesus through this psalm makes Jesus so much more beautiful because we actually see the weight of evil. One of the reasons I think that sometimes it is a little bit hard for us to grapple with why it is that Jesus had to die on the cross is because we haven't sat in psalms like Psalm 137. We have lived in a sanitized world We have not recognized the weight of evil and the seriousness with which Jesus and God and the Father will deal with injustice. And so when he comes, he says, Yes, it is weighty. And I will die for it so that all who would repent could receive mercy. And the hope of all who repent, though we ourselves are people who are also prone to injustice, comes in 2 Thessalonians 1, 6, and 7, where it says that God considers it just to repay with affliction those who have afflicted you. And that when Jesus is revealed from heaven with his mighty angels, that he will finally bring recompense and justice. So what do you do with your anger when you are wronged? What do you do with your anger when you see wrong and injustice in the world? This complicated psalm that there's so much more that we could and probably need to talk about and probably will in the Q and A. It invites us to weep. It invites us to grieve the injustice and the brokenness in the world around us and even in ourselves. And it also invites us to resist cynicism. And we can only do this if you know that God is just. You can only do this if there is a space for repentance and forgiveness that we see displayed and ultimately showed to us through Jesus and actually allows us to then live that out in those towards those around us. If we want to know if our justice is defined by Christianity and by the gospel of Jesus, then we simply have to ask, does it actually hold evil accountable And is there space for repentance and forgiveness? No other yearning for justice displays the fullness of Christianity and the fullness of the Christian story or the person of Jesus. They must be held together. So how shall we sing the Lord's song? This is the question that this psalm puts to us. And the answer to that question is that we can sing the Lord's song in the midst of injustice and suffering and oppression and dehumanizing violence as a song for justice and as a song for longing that Jesus would rule and reign over all things and that we would be defined not by our own sense of justice or vengeance, but on God's justice and on God's mercy. I'm going to pray for us before we do Q&A. We don't always do that. Um, There's just a lot in here, so it feels appropriate to pray. Uh, Father, there's so many things in this psalm to be unwoven and so many things in our hearts and in our experiences to be unwoven. Ways that we have been hurt and wounded and abused by others, ways that we have caused hurt and woundedness and abuse in others, ways that we are sanitized from so much of the evil in the world around us, ways, Lord, that we have begun to understand justice not through your vision of justice but through simply trying to find vengeance and make life work in the world. Would you teach us a new way? Would you give us humble hearts, we pray in Christ's name. Um, so let's see. Here we got some questions rolling in. Um, all right, first question. Uh, just a, a light one. Just kidding. Sometimes I have trouble with the brutality of the Old Testament. God commanded his people to commit genocide. How do we have reconciled the brutality with his ultimate goodness? Man, this is a great question, and, um, With any of these questions, I don't think that there will be a fully satisfactory answer in any uh, momentary answer, but I'll try to give at least a little bit of a sense of this. One other thing that I didn't mention in talking through this psalm that is a significant difference between Old Testament Israel and our understanding of the New Testament church uh, is that Israel was a theocracy, which is to say that their king ultimately uh, and functionally was not simply whoever was on the throne of Israel— but was actually God, and God was speaking directly through his prophets to Israel. And so there were times that he exacted justice through his people. Um, and I do think it's extremely important, once again, to recognize that this is not personal vengeance. And there is never, in fact, it is condemned when Israel takes into its own hands its own designs for when to exact justice. Um, and I, I think that's important because genocide in our modern understanding of genocide is uh, when people, by their own biases and um, assessments of other human beings, decide that because you're a part of that people group and I'm a part of this people group, that, that you need to go away. And we will do whatever it takes to make that happen. And it's happening even now in the world in many places. Um, it's happening in Sudan, it's happening uh, in, um, in parts of the, the Burmese world. There's so many places that it's happening today um, there are parts of China that it's happening. Um, and that is not what's happening in the Old Testament um, when God calls Israel uh, to um, conquer another nation. Um, and uh, it's also important to recognize that each book of the Psalms, uh, including this one, before we get to this psalm, there is also a psalm of confession and repentance. We're actually going to talk about that psalm in a couple of weeks. Um, that we can't engage with these kinds of things without first doing self-examination, and our own process of confession and repentance. Um, and again, I think it's easy to sort of read through the lens in the Old Testament of the things that God would call His people to do uh, through the lens of them doing it through vengeance, and God says that's can never be part of the deal. Um, so I know that has probably does not satisfactorily answer that question, um, and I. I also think that part of, the, um, part of the thing that you see consistently happening in the Old Testament when there is conflict between Israel and other nations and there is a, a complete conquering um, is that there is uh, pagan worship that's involved in it. Um, and uh, part of God's vision is to completely defeat that pagan worship. Uh, because you see consistently throughout Israel's history that when they don't, they actually end up becoming pagans themselves and worshiping in the ways that the nations around them um, worship. Um, yeah, there's, man, I, there's so much that could be said about this, and that's probably not even really getting into the full meat of it, but uh, I'll go ahead and um, at least try to get to one of these other questions before we close out. Um, yeah, this is a great question. Um, how should we think about working towards justice here and now, versus ultimate justice and longing for it? I'm so glad this question was asked because I think that it's easy for us to sort of, uh, and actually, historically in the United States, uh, this there is a, a poor history within the church of this because um, pre-1960s, uh, in particular, a lot of the church in the southeast, but not just in the southeast, basically endorsed racism by arguing this thing called the spirituality of the church. Um, Now, the spirituality of the church does not mean what it was being interpreted as to justify racism, Uh, but the idea was essentially, well, our job as Christians um, is just to do the spiritual thing that we do on Sunday mornings and to have our private spiritual lives. And so what's happening in the public sphere is really not of our concern. Um, The injustice that's happening in the world, that's not really our thing. Um, That's not our responsibility. And uh, looking back historically, we can quite clearly see that that was wrong, that there was racism, there still is racism, but in particular, um, injustice was rampant and the church was participating in it um, and justifying it by sort of this bifurcated way of understanding the world. Uh, and I don't think that that's what um, the psalm or what the Bible calls us to, um, We should seek justice in the here and now. We should seek systems and governments and policies and neighborhoods and cities and communities that embody justice. And we have to recognize that they will not ultimately bring it. It will always be broken. It will always be imperfect. It cannot be our hope. In fact, the reason that we actually seek To bring it about in the here and now, even though we know that it's not going to happen, is because we know God's ultimately going to bring it. If we don't believe that, then we actually, and we see this happening constantly in this moment, in the last few years we've seen this, um, when we believe that we can ultimately bring it about here and now, then we will brutalize our enemies and those we disagree with anyone who seemingly stands in the way of us achieving the particularity of our vision for what we think justice will look like, we will run over. That's a consequence of actually believing that we can bring justice ultimately now. But if we believe that ultimately God will bring justice, then it frees us to seeking to bring justice in the here and now, though imperfectly, as people who are still uh, longing. Um, and the last thing that I'll, I'll mention, this is uh, Briefly referencing another question, though we don't have time to get fully into another question, um, is that someone asks, Is the Psalm a Psalm of deep trust? And the answer is yes, absolutely. Um, it is striking how deeply the writer of the Psalm feels the atrocities, and yet their commitment to say, It's not our vengeance. It's a psalm of deep trust that God actually is worth following and that he's good in his promises. Um, and, uh, and I would also say that um, the only way that this psalm can be received helpfully or healthfully is to uh, approach whatever circumstance that we're dealing with, whatever anger is, is, uh, we're experiencing, with profound humility, um, which is a hard thing to do. It requires our own rhythm of living in repentance and forgiveness and receiving often the grace of Jesus uh, for us. Um, that being said, we're going to move uh, to the table. Um, I'm still, as many of you know, I'm two months into being a pastor here at uh, the table, and uh, I still am learning transitions and stuff, so a little bit of a rookie. Um, and sometimes I'm like, we do go straight into communion, right? Um, And the answer is yes, we do. Um, But one of the things that I love about coming to this table right now is that this table is the picture of what we're talking about. Because this table is in the very visualizations that we have. This bread is a picture of broken bones. And this wine is a picture of shed blood. Because what we remember every week when we come to the Lord's table is that because of evil in the world and because of sin and evil in our own hearts and lives, justice had to be brought, bones had to be broken, and blood had to be shed. But the beauty of the gospel story is that it was Jesus's bones that were broken and Jesus's blood that was shed so that we could receive forgiveness. If you're here this morning, um, I heard uh, a number of years ago a poet, um, man, I'm gonna butcher this because I just thought of this. It's always a dangerous thing. Um, a poet who uh, was, uh, was at a house show in Atlanta, which probably makes me sound cooler than I am, uh, a poetry house show, and um, this guy was, uh, ha- had this poem that he was going through all these different areas of people that is extremely difficult for him to, to imagine the possibility of them being able to be redeemed. And as he went through those people, he had to remind himself of the reality of the broken body of Jesus and the shed blood of Jesus. And maybe you're actually even here this morning and you're like, I'm one of the people who can't be redeemed. And I want you to know this morning that if that feels like that's you, a body was broken and blood was was shed so that you could receive mercy. It can be for you. And if you're here this morning and it is incredibly difficult for you because of the injustice that you have experienced to imagine that God could be merciful, I hear you. And I also want you to know that Jesus weeps with you. And also I want you to know that God's mercy and his justice are never separated. And they meet together in the body and the blood of Jesus. On the night that Jesus uh, was betrayed, he took bread and he broke it. And he said, this is my body broken for you. And likewise, he took a cup and he said, this is my blood shed for many for the forgiveness of sins, for the remission of your sins. Drink of it all of you. And Paul says that as often as we do this, we proclaim, we remember and proclaim the death and resurrection of Jesus. That Jesus has come. He has brought justice in his own body and he has brought mercy to his people. Would you pray with me that God would bless this body and blood? Lord, we come this morning uh, eating ordinary bread and drinking ordinary wine and juice and yet beholding something extraordinary. That you are a God of love and justice, perfectly met in the cross in the person of Jesus. That you will not let evil go unpunished. And yet, in your mercy, you have taken the punishment upon yourself for all who would turn in repentance. Lord, help us to eat this bread and to drink this wine in faith. Drinking the mercy of Jesus into our bodies so that we could live it out in the world. We pray this in Christ's name, amen. You guys can su- come in groups of eight or 10 in the next couple of songs uh, to come and take this bread and wine.